Welcome to the Iowa Idea. In the first episode of the podcast, I sit down with Alex Deason, MFA 2010 from the University of Iowa. We discuss support, collaboration, influences, and what one can learn from being on tour with Cheap Trick. Alex talks about how the music business has changed, the importance of discipline in the artistic process, and how, quote, seeing the struggle and seeing the honesty has helped him as a songwriter. When asked about his decision to attend the Iowa Writers' Workshop, Alex simply said, if the door opens, you walk through. So a little bit about Alex. He's a singer-songwriter best known as a leader of the alt-rockers The Damwells. He has released solo material and co-written songs for the likes of Justin Bieber, Robin Thicke, and The Veronicas. The New York City native formed The Damwells in 2001, acting as their main songwriter and most constant member. Eventually taking root in Brooklyn with the lineup of Deason, guitarist David Chernis, bassist Ted Hudson, and drummer Stephen Terry, they released a series of EPs before earning a spot on tour with Cheap Trick. The band completed its first full-length debut, Bastards of the Beat, before signing with Epic Records, which they released the album in 2003. When they returned to the studio two years later, however, they had found they had been dropped by the label, a story that was captured in the documentary Golden Days, released in 2007. The band's sophomore album, Air Stereo, was ultimately released by Zoe Rounder Records in late 2006. A tour with the fray followed, but disappointing record sales eventually led the Damwells to temporarily disband in 2008. Alex took the opportunity to formally study writing, earning a Master of Fine Arts in English from the University of Iowa's renowned Writers' Workshop, where he was awarded the Jeffrey G. and Victoria J. Edwards Fellowship for a short story collection, The Strange and Romantic Histories. While at the workshop, he released the Damwell's album One Last Century as a free digital download via Pace magazine. In his graduation year, he took the new Damwell's lineup, centered around himself and original bassist Ted Hudson, to the studio for a crowdfunded album via Pledge Music. The resulting No One Listens to the Band Anymore arrived in the spring of 2011. In 2012, a song Deason co-wrote called Take You appeared on Justin Bieber's 2012 chart topper Believe. That same year, one of his songs appeared on Cody Simpson's Top 30 album Paradise. He's also co-written four songs with Matt Hires, and his You and Me was written for the Veronicas for their 2015 self-titled album. In the meantime, among other collaborations and original Damwell members lineup reunited for an eponymous album also released in 2015. Alex began releasing songs under his own name around this time, with a series of four EPs called the Bedhead EPs, appearing in 2014. They were released together on a single 12-track CD in 2015. The songwriter's self-reflective, eponymous, full-length debut arrived in early 2016 and landed on Billboard Americana's folk album chart. He followed it with two in early 2017 and three in 2018. Also in 2017, Deason began working with longtime partner and collaborator Amber Bollinger. The resulting musical union, Broken Baby, a post-punk alternative rock band, released their first EP in 2017. Their debut LP in 2018 and a slew of singles throughout 2019. On April 10, 2020, Deason released Modern Life, his first solo release since 2018's Three. Join us as we sit down and talk about Alex's artistic process. I hope you enjoy the episode. Get ready, set and run away for good. 
just tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, my name is Alex Deason. Uh, I'm a musician, songwriter, and uh, I also run an independent record label called Palo Santo um, out of Dallas, Texas, but I live in Los Angeles. Um, I have a master's degree in English from the University of Iowa, and um, I live in Los Angeles. Did I already say that? I may have said that part yeah. twice. Oh, that's great. Uh, so uh, we'll talk a little bit more about music, but what brought you to the workshop? I got in. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think it's one of those places where, you know, if the door opens, you walk through it. Um, I don't know too many people who would get an acceptance letter from the workshop uh, and say no, you know, I'm uh, barring any sort of life circumstances that are preventing them from doing so. But um, yeah, it was a, it was kind of a miracle that I, I mean, it felt like a miracle that I got in. And when were you at the workshop? From 2008 to 2010. Awesome. Uh, so obviously music is a big part of your, your creative life. And uh, so is writing, did one come before the other writing or music or they kind of combined? Um, I don't know. I've been thinking about this recently and I feel like as I get older, I remember more and more the origin of like my creative process or, or, or the things that the, the artistic endeavors, I feel like the words came first. Um, because I didn't really start playing any instruments until I was probably like 11. Um, and I was always coming up with these, you know, like wild uh, fictional narratives and stuff that didn't really make any sense. But um, I don't know, I think it was a way of escaping in, inside my own imagination. And I had a very active imagination as a kid. I was always playing in some sort of imaginary world. And when you picked up an instrument, what, uh, what instrument was that? It was a guitar. Okay. Yeah. And did you actually, actually it was the drums first. Okay. And then that, that was too loud. So I had to get <laughs> something quieter. <laughs> uh, by chance, have you read, uh, Kimber McLeod, uh, professor from Iowa and the communication part, but if you, uh, he had a book that came out a couple of years ago called downtown pop underground, uh, where he uh -huh. looked he he examines uh, basically uh, Greenwich Village in the '60s, kind of leading up to the punk movement, oh, and, cool. and all of these different themes of performance art, music, and uh, you know it was like just so many interesting threads in there. It's really detailed. It was a it was a fun read. But one of the one of the things that I noticed in there is a lot of the uh, punk bands. There uh, seemed to be one of the themes seemed to be a very supportive mother that put up with oh, wow. and helped yeah, I out. Had that. And I was kind of curious from your, with your background in music, uh, if you've seen that, that theme, if it, it might transcend uh, punk or not. I mean, my mother was very supportive. I don't know about, you know, punk, but she was just supportive of whatever yep. I was doing. And I definitely started making punk rock music first, um, which, you know, I think the only thing that annoyed her about that was the hairdos. Um, you know, uh, and, uh, and probably the, the like spray paints and stuff and the, you know, the, the sort of, um, decorative arts that punk rock, uh, brought with it seemed to clash with my mother's own sense of decorative art. Um, so, um, that was about it as far as her resistance, everything else was, she was very, very supportive, um, for both me and my sister. Cool. And, uh, speaking of sister Cameron, uh, are you still collaborating with her? Um, yeah, I mean, we don't really collaborate as actively now because 
we live in different parts of the country and she just finished a book, which she just did a book tour for. And, um, you know, she's working on a bunch of her own things and she's now working on a second book. So, um, you know, we don't really collaborate as much, but, but I think the last real big collaboration we did was a project called the Rebecca West, which we did with, it was like, um, with me and her husband, Matt and, uh, and myself. Right on. Uh, want to talk about, uh, kind of your going back to, uh, early music and besides the kind of the support that you had from your family, what other support looking back was, you know, important or uh, helpful in your, your journey as an artist? Um, I mean, early on, it was definitely my mother. And then as I got older and became more, you know, serious about it, um, I had a great manager named Wes Kidd who, you know, every time I wrote a song, I would send it to him first and he would reply, um, you know, encouragingly or discouraging me from going down that path and he was really good at keeping me like on uh on the path of making the music that that i was making at the time um, and he was also really supportive of you know when, when i would go off the path but it was he, he was just a really good um just a really good like barometer for 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 what i for what i was doing that that he understood as being good because i didn't really know what was good yet, you know, it's, you're still sort of learning how to do something while being thrust into, into doing it. So, um, I was really lucky to have him. And then, you know, I had great band members. I had Ted Hudson and Steve Terry and Dave Turnus who were all like, they could see the potential in something in a song and they could really make it into something cool. Um, yeah. And my sister, of course. Yeah. So, and, uh, Wes was a musician too, right? Yeah, he was in a band called Triple Fast Act. Well, actually, he was, first he was in a band called Rights of the Accused, which was like a kind of a punk rock band. And then he was in another band called um, Triple Fast Action, which was an alternative rock band from the mid to late 90s. Out of Chicago, right? That's right, yeah. Cool. Uh, so move, moving on to some of your influences, and I don't know how much, you know, as, a, as a listener, reading into some of your songs, but it feels like you, you reference a lot of songs, but I'm kind of curious both from writing and uh, as a songwriter, who, who you had as early influences. Um, I mean, it's hard to say for songwriting because I was so excited about songwriting when I first started doing it that I, I almost didn't care if I knew how to do it or, you know what I mean? It was just, I just so desperately wanted to create songs. Um, so I guess I was influenced by the things I was listening to, which was, um, you know, anywhere from Bob Dylan to Black Flag. Um, you know, it was kind of all over the place. And I think I settled in a kind of like early proto-Americana kind of thing um, that was, um, you know, Uncle Tupelo, uh, Sun Volt, that kind of stuff, Wilco, yeah. early Wilco stuff. Because I think, at the time when I started writing songs, those bands were really, um, you know, they were in their prime. It was kind of before um, Wilco put out Summer Teeth, you know, long before that, when, when they were still making like some pretty straight up Americana stuff. Um, but then I was also listening to a lot of other stuff too. Um, a lot of left of the dial, I mean, speaking of left of dial, <laughs> the replacements were yep. a huge influence, obviously. Um, my sister introduced me to the replacements and, that kind of changed a lot of things. I think it was actually the replacements because because before I started listening to, you know, Wilco and that kind of stuff, I was listening to a lot of punk rock and a lot of post punk, um, a lot of bands like Shellac and um, 
the Jesus Lizard, and Polvo, and a lot of these bands from in and around Chicago, um, which seemed to be like an epicenter of, of, of indie rock in the early to mid 90s. And there was a lot of really interesting, aggressive music. Um, and then um, there was the replacements, and I kind of discovered them at that time, even though they had long since made some of their best records. And I think that bridged the gap for me between, you know, kind of this like, um, the, the craft of making music as a um, sort of like as a as a vehicle for a message of some kind, um, even if that message was ridiculous. As were you know, I think a lot of those bands had some really interesting messages buried in some, um, you know, some of the more abstract stuff. Especially David Yao's lyrics in the Jesus Lizard. There's some incredible stuff in there, and I think that Paul Westerberg was able to bridge the gap between the sort of like viral song crafting to, um, you know, making like something that was a, a bit more of a American rock and roll thing. Um, so I think that once, once I heard, you know, songs, once I heard those Paul Westerberg songs, I kind of didn't go back for, for a while anyway. Yeah. Do, do you remember uh, specifically any of Westerberg's songs that really kind of floored you or just like yeah, stood and- out? Yeah, androgynous was like, I just thought that was like, who was singing about that at the time? Um, right. And it was and it was like, there was something really romantic about it. Um, and that I really liked. You know, I think in the, in, in the uh, tradition of um, the Kinks and, and other bands that, that sort of broached the, the subject of transgender um, and from transgender from a very cis white male perspective, but sort of like this romance aspect to it like this this sort of like i don't know hungry curiosity about it um and a gentleness about it you know yeah yeah um and i think that that androgynous did that uh, in a really special way i just like that he was able to tackle some of these you know another great one of course is like uh, here comes a regular um you know just tackle these sort of like the um the edges of American consciousness and highlight some of the characters in there and bring them into the center. Yeah. I think, I, I feel like also kind of the replacements and, and for me, it's hard not to separate them from some, you know, some of the other Minneapolis scene at the time, but mm, yeah, like you said is uh, Westerberg's approach is especially androgynous here. He, and thinking about this, like what, 30 plus years ago now uh, yeah. that he's, he's touching something that was really taboo. <laughs> And, but in a, in a, like a caring and loving way. And I just found, yeah, for me, Androgynous was, was a song that it's like the first time I heard it, I wasn't even sure who the band was, but really, really dug the song. And now that I, I look back at it, it just seems that it, it was even more progressive and caring than, than one might think where, you know, a lot of, a lot of eighties pop culture, right. It was like a lot of movies were like cheap shots at, uh, you know, uh, underrepresented groups, right? And just how Westerberg kind of touched something on, on the edge, but I felt was a, a kind of a, a caring approach to it. Yeah, and the, and I think like you know Lola, which is I think the song that that would have that would be the yeah the proto the proto androgynous song. Um, <laughs> you know Lola is like you know by the Kinks is like uh, the one of the first songs probably anybody heard about um, someone who was trans. I think right. that there's a lot of comedy in Lola that I think that that is um, that that was 
par for the course at, at that time in, in our culture. And I think that, um, but there's still, there's still some sensitivity into it. And I think that what Westerberg did was sort of take that exact subject matter and, and imbue it with even more empathy and more sympathy in his sort of, you know, rugged Midwestern sensibility, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned here comes a regular as well. Cause that, I, I enjoy that song quite a bit, but I think one of my favorite lines in there is, uh, uh, referring to there, there not being much leaves to rake in the fall, <laughs> which yeah, yeah. if you lived in Minneapolis, there's always tons of leaves to rake, but just kind of that, that, that disengaged element I just thought was, was great. Oh yeah. That's really cool. There's so many great little moments. I mean, yeah. thanks for the book. Now my table is steady. Is this a library or a bar? I mean, what a great, <laughs> incredible lot. I mean, yeah. So, and, and I apologize if this sounds really cliche, but I'm really interested in how you approach your, your craft. Cause it's just part of the Iowa idea. One of the big things that I'm interested in is talking to craftspeople mm-hmm. about their approach. And I'm always curious because uh, my, my mental model coming more from uh, production and film and theater side is uh, if you're not exposed to it, you don't know how much went into it in the background for something to be well-designed. Uh, sure. And so I, I'm always curious and just uh, kind of nerd out on uh, the way people approach their craft. And do you have a kind of a, a ritual or a specific approach you like to take project and to try to just squeeze as much as you can out of them to keep you in it? Um, Discipline is really hard for people. It's really hard for me too. Mm-hmm. Um, but before I went to the University of Iowa. Um, you know, before I was in that program, I, I really felt like I just wrote a song and that was it. It was done, you know, kind of came, it was like a very Jack Kerouac kind of like, you know, it came from God through my head and they went on the paper and I didn't change it, you know. Um, right. And that's, you know, that, that, that works for Kerouac, I guess, but it doesn't work for almost 99.9% of everyone <laughs> else who's trying to make anything. Right. Um, so I just learned to sit there with the work and to just keep working at it and, to not beat myself up, to write bad things, you know, to write, to write bad art. And then, you know, just to, just to get it going and then come back and to not be afraid of writing bad sentences. You know, that was a big, um, that was a big point of Ethan Kanan's kind of, um, his theory, his, his theory of discipline, you know, was just write bad stuff, you know, just, and also lots of little tricks too. Like don't finish at the end of the day, you know, don't finish what you're working on at the end of the day, leave it unfinished so that when you come back the next day, you have something to work on immediately as opposed to staring at a task and waiting for, um, waiting for something to inspire you, you know, like, um, like it's always really hard to write the second verse, you know, I mean, I'll write the chorus, the first verse, the bridge, the, you know, some other weird part of the song, but that second verse is really hard. So I, I really try to, make a point and not leave that, um, you know, um, in a completely unfinished task at the beginning of the day. What makes it hard? I think because when you write the first verse in the chorus, you sort of said everything. <laughs> um, and in the second verse, you just have to sort of say more of it. And I think for me, anyway, I find myself plagued with the kind of like, um, an existential crisis of like, should I say something else that's not in it? Maybe there's something else in there that I don't know about. Maybe this isn't what I think it's about. Maybe this is about something else. Maybe this, oh, I really like this verse. Maybe this should be the first verse now and I should scrap this, this other verse. I mean, it just becomes a real, um, you know, it just becomes like a real conundrum. 
so I try to keep it, you know, try to keep it on the rails, um, but it, it can be hard. You mentioned uh, Ethan Kanan, and I know uh, one performance of yours I was at, uh, and it was it was specific to the song "Assholes." If I'm remembering this, uh, that you you went back and changed the song after advice from from Ethan. Did I? I don't remember that. Maybe. What do you remember? What the change was? No, and I I thought and uh, that sounds like something very it sounds something very Ethan Kanan ish of him. I, I and I apologize for this, but it's like uh, the the re, uh, record version of the song, right? Is just it's it's just really short. Yeah, uh, and then mm-hmm. and then when you performed it, it it was as if it had more uh, verses to it. Uh, and I would, well, the song I, always had more verses. Um, I think that maybe what you're referring to is that um, I, I used to play a, a truncated version and and with the band and everything like that. And Ethan thought that that those lyrics were so funny and, and interesting that I should play it by myself um, more often. So I, I think I started incorporating it more into shows because he, he really, he really liked that song. Ethan had a thing about like, you know, and uh, he's, he's, you know, definitely thinks that, you know, the curse words are like, you know, they're like a little like cherry on top, you know, but you can't just use all, all cherries, you know? Right. Um, right. So he always liked a good, a good place curse word. So if you could walk me through a little bit, just, I think interesting times in your, in your career and uh, what we've, what we've witnessed over the past couple decades of how kind of the music industry and its models have really shifted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I'm kind of curious for you just a little bit, like what you've seen or reactions and from either changing changes in the models to performing, touring, and then I, I, I want to talk a little bit about kind of writing and publishing models, but um, what are some of the biggest changes that have impacted you as a musician on, on the way the kind of the, the recording industry has changed over the past couple decades? I mean, the recording industry is, uh, is a shadow of itself um, of what it once was. I mean, as far as the depths to which they would mine for, for artists and performers, I mean, Everything's streaming, which, you know, created a lack of demand for physical products, which caused uh, brick and mortar stores, retailers to, to collapse. A lot of them collapsed. Um, famously, Tower Records was one of them. Um, so I think that definitely changed the way that people encountered music. Um, when you would go into Tower Records or HMV or like one of these record stores, you know, these sort of bigger chain ones, um, you know, they still had this, the same spirit that like Newberry Comics had, which is an independent record store in um, Massachusetts. You know, they had people working there who were really into music. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to find a place where you can go, where someone can help you to discover music within the genres or within the styles that you like is, is impossible. It just doesn't exist unless you go to an independent record store and because they are not as common, um, it's just harder and harder to have that kind of engagement. So in that way, it's changed it for the worse. Um, I remember, you know, I discovered lots of bands by combing the shelves at a record store and, um, you know, having someone come up to me and say, Hey, can I help you? And me like, you know, sort of like wide eyed holding a mm-hmm. replacements record and, and them saying, Oh yeah, that's a great record. And then, you know, showing me some other records, showing me some other bands that, that I might like. Um, 
that was normal uh, back in the day. That was a normal interaction at a record store. Um, you know, I think that people probably have have had those interactions when they're at like other retailers, like the grocery store where someone comes up, comes up to you and it's like, are you finding everything? Can I help you? You know, but that was like something that in the record store, you said yes to. You were like, yes, I, I'd love for, I'd love for you to help me. I'm, I'm really interested in this thing. And, you know, it's kind of hard to do that with a can of peas. Um, <laughs> so, so that changed for the worse. But the things that changed for the better was that, you know, the internet took out the middleman. You didn't need a major record label anymore to distribute your music. And that was huge. You didn't need a major record label to um, give you hundreds of thousands of dollars that you could go into a studio to record. You could do it on your laptop. That was huge. Um, you didn't need to, uh, you know, go out and tour 300 days a year to try to sell a couple hundred records because you could tour regionally and um, people could find you on social media and go to your streaming services, you know, whatever streaming services can find you and spread your music around. I mean, you know, that was, that was huge. But I think that what's ultimately lost in all of that is, you know, music is a, it's a boutique art form um, that has its, you know, has its like big marquee acts, just like any, just like anything, just like, um, you know, food, you know, restaurants, you know, there's like the cool restaurant that you go to that's run by a chef who has, you know, farm to table stuff. And then there's, you know, chilies, um, <laughs> you know, it's like, and I'm not saying anything bad about chilies. I'm just saying that it's, you know, people who listen to music are people who go to small restaurants who want to have an experience. Um, you know, people who really listen to music who like, you know, know who the producer is and the artists and know their catalog and stuff like that. Um, so I think that, um, you know, that audience um, has had to learn how to adjust in this era. And I think we've lost some people. I think we lost some music fans to age, you know, some people age out, they have kids, they get a job and, you know, they can't like, you know, go see their favorite bands on the weekends. But, but I think that as, as that generation has children, those children don't seem to be as, as interested in opening up the sleeves of their parents' vinyl and reading the liner notes and finding out who played on what and then going to that record label and finding other, other bands and acts that, that record label distributed and discovering more bands that way. I mean, that's how I did it. Um, and I think that's lost. Yeah, you're, I mean, that was a lot for my my childhood to a lot in the 80s for me was uh, one was uh, poor, my, my dad uh, had a fantastic kind of like uh, old school country and uh, British New Wave, like record collection. Yeah. Right? So awesome. like one day, you know, listening to, uh, you know, Beatles record. And then like, uh, I remember as a, as a really little kid in the 70s being fascinated with uh, Folsom prison, just looking at Johnny cash and like, yeah, you're like the, the media sitting next to the record player too. Cause you couldn't go far away from it because a few songs in, you're going to have to flip it. Right. I remember that, that physical connection that's lost. And then the, the other thing in the eighties for me, I grew up in, uh, in a mid-sized Rust Belt city that mm-hmm. in Rockford, Illinois, home of cheap trick. Uh, oh yeah. And but we didn't have a lot of good independent record stores. And so social curation was huge for us. And you, you hope that you had like somebody's older brother or sister that you could lean on. Yeah. I had an older sister who was huge in that department. Yeah. And we would, some of what would happen is uh, 
we would we'd pool some money together if somebody's mom was going to take him to Chicago and mm-hmm. and then they would just go buy a bunch of records and then we That's would come awesome. back and and you know kind of share those uh, different type of file sharing back in the day but that was right right <laughs> There was a there was a hunt that I think is gone. Like I think part of like you you wanted to celebrate your victory. Like there there's no way I would have ever been introduced to the band Red Cross if it wasn't for one of those random pickups my friend made in Chicago, right? And then you're right, exactly. You're trading those and listening to those, and then also like you said on the hunt where I used to study the back of albums and get excited if I saw oh this person played here and trying to right. make those connections and. I sound like an old man, but I think it's too easy. So there's not, there's not that victory because there, there's well, actually, a commitment. I would to offer it. that it's not, it's not easy enough because now you can't find that information. I mean, wh- where is anyone going to find out who played percussion on the latest release by, you know, insert pop artist here. It's just, it's just not, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist mostly because it's all programs and it's all, um, you know, um, curated by producers and stuff and the yeah. teams are smaller and, but yeah, I mean, I think it's just, it's too hard. Um, and so I think that people are just more interested in other things that, you know, kids anyway are more interested in other things that they can get involved in. It's, it's you know, I, I hate to be the old man yelling, you know, get off my lawn, but it does feel like things, as far as music were concerned, um, independent music, things were better before. Um, I think what we gained uh, with the advent of the internet and access, um, which I think is huge. I think we really lost in that um, the richness of a fan base, you know? Um, yeah. Thanks. One, uh, one of the things I want to dig into is like kind of in your time, you know, being part of somebody else's label. Now you're, mm-hmm. you have a label uh, mm-hmm. and then kind of in between though, you've also done crowdfunding. Um, mm, oh yeah. And like any any big pros or cons from any of those models or is it just a, a continuous evolution it's definitely a continuous evolution i mean the cons of that model at least with the crowdfunding one is that pledge you know embezzled money and stole money from artists and went bankrupt that sucked <laughs> um yeah i mean the only downside i think to that other than what i just mentioned was that i think people underestimate how complicated it is to be your own dis- distributor you know um you have to coordinate with the manufacturing companies, um, the mastering houses. If you're making vinyl, you have to find someone to cut your lacquers, make your lathes. I mean, it's a huge, huge yeah. process that can get totally derailed at any number of places and have you wind up with a totally inferior product. Um, so I think that that's a lot of people underestimate how complicated that is. You know, you're like, oh yeah, I'll charge a hundred bucks for handwritten lyric sheets. Well, you're going to have to write all you know, 20 or a hundred or a thousand of those. And that takes a significant amount of time. Um, And I'm not saying that it's, you know, I'm not complaining about it. It's just, if you're not used to doing those things, uh, it can, it can be, it can be a a beating. You know, we work with a lot of bands that are label who are, you know, younger, newer bands. And a lot of them are very um, super smart about social media and connecting with fans and going the extra mile. And a lot of them are. A lot of them are, they just don't get it. They just don't get that you, that this is, this is the new reality. There's no labels going to come in and do all these things for you. Write thank you notes to program directors at stations and, you know, who are, when, when we're working your records at college radio, um, that has to be done by the band. Um, and that hasn't really changed, but I think because of the convenience, you know, maybe more, you know, that's what you're talking about, about how, how easy it is. 
it's really easy to distribute music digitally, but it's really hard to make anybody listen to it. And the way you make people listen to it is the same way you always did. Go out, play shows, make friends, meet other bands, invite those bands to play with you, hope those bands invite you, know, you to play with them, call your local radio station, um, you know, try to get people interested in what you're doing. And that requires 24 hour perseverance, um, you know, that, that a lot of people just don't understand. It's, I mean, it's so easy to order dinner with your phone, right. you know, but it, it's still hard to make fans, but they're out there. You just got to go hunt them down. So on the, uh, on the touring side, just as we're, you know, as we're talking right now, we're in kind of in the middle of you know, the coronavirus uh, and social distancing and sheltering in place. So all, basically all touring is stopped, right? Right. And are you, are you, are you missing that? Or uh, are there other things that you're doing to make up for time that you would have been touring? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm doing what I can, you know, um, my new band broken baby, which isn't that new anymore, but my, my band broken baby had a tour that was scheduled for the end of May. It looks like that's not going to happen. Um, you know, so we had to adjust. And so we're, we had a whole EP we were going to put out and this campaign for the song and all this other stuff. And so we're still going to do most of that just minus the touring. Um, you know, we're really lucky in that we have, um, I, mean, I, I guess I've been doing this long enough that I, I know a lot of different people. Um, who can help out and do help to do things, you know, people for whom I've done things. And so we've been, Broken Baby's been doing this thing, these like sort of quote unquote live shows where the drummer records his part, the audio and the visual sends it to me and I record my guitar part. I send that to the bass player. He records that part and we give it to Amber and she records her part and we split the screen and, you know, in, in four squares and then we perform it, you know, we sort of mix it together as a live performance. That's one way I think that bands are learning to evolve in this, in this, in this, you know, current, you know, shit show that we're in. Um, yeah. Other things that people are doing is they're doing a lot of live streaming, you know, which is, um, which is really cool. Can, can also be irritating, but, but it's really cool. Um, I mean, I don't know where pe people adjust. Um, I mean, it's horrible what's going on. There's no doubt about it, but yeah. it does allow for people to, you know, if you've been thinking about writing a song, you know, if you've been thinking about writing a short story or finishing War and Peace or whatever, I mean, this is kind of a good time to do it. Not to say that you should do it now. You know, I've been seeing these things going around. It's like, if you don't come out of this, you know, this crisis with a new skill and, a, you know, time was never your problem. It was discipline. And to that person, I tell them to fuck themselves. Everybody yeah. should just do whatever they need to do, you know. I I feel like it's pouring gas on an anxiety fire for a lot of people. Absolutely right. You can't get food and now someone's breathing down your neck about finishing your novel. Right. <laughs> um, I think that's ridiculous. But, but, if, but if you are the kind of person that, that you know, hunkers down and gets to work, uh, then yeah, this is great. I mean, I'm releasing a, an Alex Deason, you know, Dan Wells-ish song tomorrow. It's the first one I've written in, for myself that I performed you know, like a song for myself. First one I've done like that in three years. Um, awesome. You know, I've got another one that I'm probably going to put out the next week. I'm working on another one now. Broken Baby's going to put out a song at the end of, uh, or the middle of May. We're working on a video right now. We're doing those, more of those live videos. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm just keeping busy, you know, but I, that's kind of how I always am, I think. Thanks. Another question I have for you, just kind of on the writing and publishing side, because uh, mm -hmm. you've, you've also been a songwriter for, for other acts. Yeah. 
How do, how does that do you do you initially put a song out and they hear or are you contacted by an artist like can you help me with this? How does sure. that process work for you? It happened all kinds of ways. I mean, I wrote a song for Justin Bieber that was on his record Believe. Um, that was really like a songwriting camp where um, the guy who was my songwriting manager had brought me into this this camp. You know, where we were kind of going around from different studios within this building and working with different people, and just happened to get a thing together that that the a and r people really liked and they took it and it became a song um and then there's other artists like when i was working with the dixie chicks you know they um were fans of my band the Damwells. they had taken us out on tour um, years before that and, and then they were working on new music and they asked me to come and help them write it which you know i did that which turned into um some um courtyard hounds songs yeah. which was the, the the band that emily and marty had without natalie uh, so that was, you know, they were fans. The Beaver thing was, you know, sort of the, the corporate side of it. Um, you know, and then I did a, a record with this guy named Matt Hires, who was on Atlantic Records for a couple of years, still around making great records, but his last record for Atlantic. Um, the, I was good friends with the producer, this guy named Eric Ross. And he invited me in to work with, with Matt. And Matt and I really hit it off. And the three of us kind of had a really good groove together. And so we just, we wrote most of the record together. Um, so it happens all kinds of ways. Um, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. And I was kind of curious too, from an artistic perspective, when you are the songwriter, do you still have, have rights to the song or is it? Uh, yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's like if you and I wrote a song together and you went on and performed it, if it was just the two of us, then the songwriting um, ownership would be split between the two of us. You know, however we saw fit, you know, 50, 50, 60, 40, whatever. Um, but yeah, you know, you don't you don't lose anything. The problem with co-writing, which is why I stopped doing it for the most part, is that uh, it's a lot of work for what could be a lot of money. It can also be very little money. It can also be some. It's just it's like Vegas, you know. Um, and and it is still part of a system that has um, that is still overrun with um, you know favoritism and. Uh, you know, all kinds of nepotism and stuff like that. So, you know, cause the music business is still a you know, dark and disgusting place. Um, but it's, um, so it's, it's, it's really hard. I'm just not, you know, I don't really think of myself as a hustler in that, in that way. You know, I, I guess you know, I hustle in other ways or not, you know, I mean, running a record label is a lot of hustling, but it's, it's, it's sort of like hustling. That's, feels very American, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so, and out of my care, yeah, part of that curiosity too was just, uh, obviously as a, as a fan of yours, uh, it's just your songwriting. I've just really appreciated both, both the music, you know, the melody, but also the stories that you're telling and the narrative. And one of the things that I, I feel with, and I don't, I don't know if this is true or not. I'm just, you know, you can call bullshit on this too, but <laughs> yeah, uh, one of the things that I think separates you from a lot of songwriters from my person is your vulnerability uh, mm. and uh, openness to a pro. I mean, we were talking about Westerberg earlier, right? He was kind of open about a lot of things, but uh, also some transitions in almost different phases that I feel I saw from Damwell's records to kind of, uh, Alex Deason solo, but then also, also the, you know, what's going on with broken baby and they're and musically. I feel like they're all kind of, different genres but i really appreciate the songwriting that's coming through do you do you actively work on being one vulnerable 
And then two, mm-hmm. uh, more stylistically, do you, are you making explicit genre changes when you're taking on a new band identity? Um, well, first of all, thank you for those kind words. I really appreciate it. Um, I, I don't know. Um, I guess, I, I don't know if it's from, let's see, how do I answer this? I don't purposely take on a new aesthetic with a different project. I think I find myself urging for uh, change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that change is viral. You know, it's it, one aspect starts to change and then another aspect starts to change. And so when I started writing songs, different kinds of songs for like the first, my first solo record, um, there was change happening lyrically and thematically. So change, which, which begot change musically and aesthetically. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, I feel like almost like from a systems perspective, it's so interconnected that once one thing starts to move, other things are going to react. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's like a segmented worm, you know, it just sort of crawls its way, catching up with the part in front, you know, um, and sort of burrows its own path. And I think with Broken Baby, um, I think that was the first time that I actually, you know, because it's Amber's the lead singer of that band, and she's the collaborator. She's the one who, who is my collaborator in that, in that band. Um, I wanted to do something that was focused on her. Um, she had sung in, in, my, uh, in my solo band. Yeah. Um, and she had her own musical tastes and stuff. And I think at the time, I was, I was definitely sick and tired of, singing my own songs. I was tired of being the person in the, in the, you know, just, just war on me after a while. And she offered, you know, this incredible opportunity with, with what she's able to do because she's a real performer and she's a real singer. And um, so we just sort of said, what do you want? Let's do something. What should we do? And I think at first the instinct was, Oh, it should be like a folky thing. Cause I make kind of, you know, folk adjacent, rock and rollish music and uh and then we started listening to you know pulling out our favorite records and they were like not folk records it was you know gang of four and jesus lizard kind of going back to pre-westerberg influences for me and that really excited me because i remember being a guitar player you know at one point in my life you know and then i became a songwriter who kind of played rhythm guitar but then when i got to be a guitar player again things got really exciting. And so when you start playing guitar as a guitar player, um, coming up with parts and different things and trying to imbue the instrument with your own voice, um, everything starts to shift around that, you know, and the songs start to shift around that. And then the guitar starts to shift around the songs and it requires this different thing. That's the only time I think that I purposely set out to change everything for a specific project. You know, Broken Baby was not going to be, you know, the damn wells, you know, plus, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so yeah. And that was really exciting. It still is. I feel like, um, years ago it was a Elvis Costello interview, but I, I think one time it was like, he's just talked about different times in his life where he just felt like he needed to go explore a different path. Right. And I think, yeah, I think he might even use the term after, after he was doing like the Juliet letters and doing some more that he, I think it was when he really put the imposters together that he just, needed to do a, a, a body rock and roll record again, right? It's just, sure. 
feeling these different phases. I'm curious on what you said with the guitar part that what do you have a, when you're creating, do you have a go-to guitar or is it just the nearest guitar? Um, well, it depends what I'm creating for. Um, I mean, at this point in my life, I have so many guitars. There's never one very far from me. Um, yeah. <laughs> in fact, I have too many guitars and you get rid of some of them, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, um, you know, with broken baby, it starts with an electric guitar. Usually, sometimes it actually starts with an acoustic guitar and we kind of work out the song together, which is which has actually been really cool for a number of songs we've done. But a lot of times it starts with a guitar. It starts with a guitar part, the riff of some kind, and then um, a beat. And then, you know, I'm sort of programming all these things together to give it, um, you know, like to make it feel like a band. And then um, we start writing the song to that. You know, it's almost like creating a track and then writing the top line to the track, um, which is how a lot of pop music is is actually is actually created is that producers will create entire tracks, finished tracks with no vocals and then give them to artists and top liners and other people who will then take the track and sing, you know, make up a, come up with a concept and melodies and lyrics and put that on top of it. That's kind of what we do a lot of the time in Broken Baby. Um, and then um, there's also times when we do that and then um, we give we give that to the band and then the band has their own kind of take on stuff. And then we start rehearsing it and then we start playing it and then it becomes another thing. And so we go back to the recording we sort of change it. You know, we get Brian to play on it or Adam to play on it, the bass player and drummer. Um, and then it starts to change and evolve and become something different. I mean, still true to what it was in, 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 in its essence, but, but becoming something collaborative and interesting and cool and, you know, and alive. But yeah, I mean, I think it's, Whatever is nearby, depending on, on the project, you know, with Broken Babies, definitely electric guitar. With my own stuff, which, you know, I haven't really done until recently, um, it's, a, it's a little bit of a combination. The acoustic guitar is here just to work it out, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's hard, to, it's hard to feel the energy of a song with an acoustic guitar right. if you have a vision for it. I mean, I guess this is the problem with also being a producer is that I can sort of see where it's going and I can make that happen pretty quickly so that I can like feel it coming back to me. You know, it's kind of like my collaborator is, is, is sadly the computer Yeah, <laughs> is, yep. is, is my, my digital audio workstation, my programming. That's my collaborator in many ways. Um, and that can create a, a bond between, you know, the, the music and the, the lyrics and melody that can cause, you know, acoustic guitars to come in. And let me take a break from that and write this part. Okay. Let me go back into the, the machine and, and make it sound the way, you know, so it really depends. I've got a question for you about, so thinking about mentors or influences, uh, just what's a, a story of craft, creativity, or persistence that, that sticks with you that might've been from somebody else that helps you, like when you're either getting stuck or in a rut or, or need to do something different? Is there, is there a line or story from somebody else that sticks with you? Well, there's a couple things. There's one was, which is Ethan Kanan, who was my professor at, at the workshop at Iowa, who always, you know, he just said, be disciplined, you know. Um, discipline is the one thing that you can learn and the one thing you can get better at. You know, you may not ever write better sentences, but, but you can definitely get better at writing, you know, at actually writing, you know, yep. of being more disciplined about it. Um, that's one thing. The other thing is expectations. You know, there's a famous quote by Philip Roth where he's talking about literary fiction. And he's like, you know, there are only 10,000 people in the world who actually read literary fiction. So, you know, your expectations should be tempered to that. You know, <laughs> you're only really writing for 10,000 people. Um, you know, so I think having expectations is, 
is the realistic expectations. That's hard. That's really hard, I think, for artists. Uh, and it was hard for me just to come to the realization that, you know, um, there has to be a love in the craft of doing it. There has to be a love of it so that you can um, always continue to do it regardless of the outcome. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think about those things, you know, um, yeah, I think that's, you know, I mean, there's, there's lots of, there's, I mean, there's so many ways that, that people use, um, you know, discipline to get things done. I mean, storyboarding for fiction, you know, I have a, like a dry erase board in the studio yep. where I have like all the different parts, you know, I have, you know, that need to get finished, like, oh, add, add this part to this thing, add this thing to this thing. And then I have a whole file of song titles hundreds of songs you know someone says something like uh you know the second the, the, song, the next song i'm actually releasing in a, in a week or two um someone said to me there's no getting over it and i just thought oh that'd be a cool song that'd be a cool yeah. um you know um place to start so i have a lot of i have a lot of places to start that's really good actually is is just writing down titles to songs stories what books you know whatever movies having a title is really like because it's almost like um it's like seeing the future in a way, you know, it's like working backwards and coming up with a title from what you've already created. That always feels like, is that a good title? But if you have a title that makes sense and sounds good, you can really create a lot around that. That can set direction. Yeah, absolutely. It's really easy. It's really easy to work backwards. As I think for me, it's, it's way easier to work backwards. Start with a song title, start writing the chorus first, and then write the verses after, you know, it's sort of like, if you write the ending, you know where you're going. Yeah. You know, um, there's this famous, uh, another famous, the uh, visual aid of a tree. And when you're looking up from the bottom of a tree, you see where everything eventually connects and becomes the trunk and leads down into the earth. But when you're looking at the tree from above, it just looks like endless possibilities. There's no way of knowing which way this tree is going to go. So if you lay down the trunk, you know, if you lay down the foundation first, then you can kind of build whatever you want because you know where everything's going. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Yeah. I, I feel like, yeah, a lot of, a lot of that I feel like overlaps with design too, about like certain principles and, you know, it's almost like thinking more in outcomes, right. than out, right. but where, where can this go? And then there's, there's lots of creative paths that can get you there. Right. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. Question for you, uh, just this is as a, a Rockford power pop nerd boy. Uh, what mm -hmm. was it like to work with Bunny? It was great. I mean, <laughs> the Damos toured with Cheap Chuck a number of times and we kind of had a rapport with, with them. And, uh, you know, Bunny is, is the real, um, like, he's still super invested in music, uh, yep. you know, music that people are putting out now. He's, when he was playing with Cheap Chuck, he was always like the guy who was wearing like a Sunvolt shirt or wearing like a, a Wilco shirt or what, you know, he's like, he's really in it, you know? Um, so working with him was really fun because he's obviously a wealth of stories and information. He's such an, uh, just an interesting character in the history of rock and roll too. That whole band is like, it's uh, what a cool band, <laughs> what an amazing band. Um, just like the Pied Pipers of classic rock, you know? Um, and uh, yeah, he, he was really cool. He had a lot of stories, you know. Uh, working with him is really easy. You know, he recorded, I, I sang and, and uh, performed on his solo record that he just put out. Um, and he, um, 
he wanted to do a song of mine. So I sent him a, like a couple songs and he picked one that um, I think it's called, um, God, I don't even remember what it's called. Um, but he recorded that song and then I sang it and then he recorded another song, um, just a classic song um, that he wanted to do. And I sang that one. And then I went to, to uh, Evanston for the record release show at the space. Yeah. Um, and I sang, you know, I was up there with, with Bunny and a bunch of other characters and sang a bunch of songs and it was great. It was, you know, he's a, he's a real, like in every band in every super famous band, there's always like one person that is, you know, where you start talking about records and, and they, they're just a wealth of knowledge. I'm not saying that Robin or any of the rest of the guys yeah. aren't. I mean, Robin Zander is, I mean, he is an encyclopedia of, of rock and roll history. I, mean, the, the, I think what makes that band so special is that they're all, so smart about what they're doing, you know, um, yep. just really, really, really smart. Could, they were able to dig into the reservoir of influence that they brought to the, to the studio and just pick out little pieces like tiles on a, on a, you know, on a, on a mosaic and take this tile from the kinks and take this tile from the Beatles and take this tile from here and put them together in this just insane, uh, like, collision of rock and roll that that has been that is unmatched um so i think i think being uh having the, the damos having a history with that band i think was really really uh just hugely influential to us because we obviously would watch them play every night and see how they would perform but then listening to their records watching them play those records and watching them talk about those songs and um that i think that you know at the end of the day that that's one of the things i'm so thankful for is having that opportunity to, to tour with them and play those shows with them. Uh, and it was also a lesson in, you know, school of hard knocks. I mean, you know, not every show was in an arena. I mean, right. Most of them were in, you know, small theaters or even, you know, casinos, um, yep. really yep. tiny venues sometimes, you know. Um, and I think at, at times it, you know, looking at that, it's felt like, Oh, this is kind of a little depressing. This band that had been, so big is now playing this little this little venue or, or playing this this weird casino where people are sitting down and eating while they're playing um they didn't care you know they, they, they didn't care you know i don't think that um rick nielsen cared where he was playing he just he just loved to play he loved playing still he just he yep. loves it you know i mean at the end of the show he was just ready to play another one you know it's just <laughs> just loved love love to play so that was really cool what's your uh Put you on the spot. What's your favorite Cheap Trick song? That's tough. I mean, there's so many great ones. Surrender is obviously just like, what, it, what is that song? You know, I just, I have tried <laughs> to splice the DNA of that song so many times to figure out what's happening. But also like, like Southern Girls is such a great song. He's a whore. I mean, yeah. the, the Manicello. I mean, there, there's like, there's so many great songs. I think I have a, I think my favorite record is In Color. Um, yeah, yep. I think from start to finish, that record is so cool. But then Heaven Tonight is really, really great too. Um, I think that I think I get a little lost when they head towards like Dream Police and stuff, even though those records are really great. Um, even The Flame is great. I mean, they didn't write it, but yeah, it, it's yep. it's it's just I think that what Cheap Trick, unlike Aerosmith, unlike the Rolling Stones, who you know. I, I love them too, but they're still trying to assert their relevance. 
they're still trying to say, you know, like, like we what we do now matters. And I hate to tell you, but it doesn't. What Aerosmith is doing right now does not matter as far as the history of rock and roll. What they've done is extraordinarily important. What they're doing now, nobody cares, and rightfully so. But what they're trying to do, it seems like, is like assert this relevance, which I think is, makes everything look a little tired. Yeah. And I think Cheap Trick has never really done that. I think they're a hardworking American band. They're a blue-collar band. And I think that's why people gravitate towards them because they're not like, they're almost, they're making fun of this thing the whole time. I mean, look at in color on the front is, oh, you know, yeah. is Robin and Tom on the, the motorcycles on the inside cover is Bunny and Rick on bicycles. It's like, it, it's showing you the, the spectrum of right. success, yep. you know, and it, and it exists within the band itself. Bunny Carlos, you know, the look of that band, I mean, come on. <laughs> Bunny Carlos is like, you know, he's like someone's dad. What is he, the dad? Is he the accountant? You know, um, it's just really interesting. And I think it embodies like what, what, I don't know, what for me excites me in art is seeing the struggle, seeing the, the, the humanity of it. You know, I don't need to see, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't need to try to be convinced of everything when I listen to Cheap Trick. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah no, and, I, and what you said too is like, anytime I've met any member of the band, and sometimes it's just back in Rockford, you know, bumping into them. For, they're always just, they're nice guys off stage, right? There's the persona yeah. of being kind of these, these approachable rockers, like doing fun stuff. Uh, but yeah, off, off stage, they're, they're just a really nice group of guys. And that's always been one of the coolest things to me is just how I see them treat people off stage. Yeah. And, and, and Bunny's one of the nicest guys. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, they're all, they're, they're all just, uh, yeah, I mean, I can't underscore, or I can't emphasize strong, any stronger how important it was to be, to see that band. And it wasn't just about seeing them perform every night. Uh, it was also about just seeing the way they interacted with each other, with fans, with their crew, with, you know, like seeing Bunny get frustrated about something, like seeing, seeing Robin, like, you know, roll his eyes. About, you know, it was just like seeing them be human, I think. And because they're such a human band, because they are such a working class band, um, it really put everything together for me in a very neat, you know, talk about like um, discipline and, and, and influence. It, it really showed, I think, our, it showed the Damwells very early on how to be a successful band. Not necessarily how to be a, a popular band, because nobody can show you how to do that, but yeah. how to take what you have and make a success of it. Um, and, and just to remain human. I mean, I sat, I sat down at the bar in, um, what's that bar? It's a hotel in uh, Nashville. And I was there doing some writing for country artists years ago. And Robin Zander just happened to be there. And we sat at the bar for like two hours and just hung out. We just talked about stuff. Um, talked about music, talked about his son who's working on music and stuff. And just I'm so thankful for that whole thing. You know, it was great. That's great. Uh, so I want to thank you so much for your time. It was great connecting yeah, with you. Thank you. Was there anything that we didn't cover that, uh, or any no. promotion stuff you want to throw out there? <laughs> no, no. I mean, I'm putting out a song tomorrow, but I, you know, who knows when this will air. So right. Be out there. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's music out there. Broken Baby has a lot of music out there. I put out three solo records. There's a bunch of damn well stuff. Uh, if you're interested, it's all, it's all on the interwebs. Awesome. 
Alex, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, look forward to hearing the, the new songs. Hey, thanks, man. I appreciate you. Take care. All right.